Psalm 117 this evening. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we're currently in the book of Psalms looking at Psalm 117 this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave to them and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And we try to cover a little territory on Sunday nights, at least more than the Sunday mornings. And um, you can be fairly lost without a Bible. And uh, so please get one into your hands. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you tonight. In Psalm 117 is the cry of uh, the psalmist, uh, a Jewish man, a cry from his heart to the whole world to join him in the worship of the Lord. Psalm 117 is the shortest of all of the psalms, just two verses. It's just one psalm removed away from the longest psalm in the whole Bible, and that's Psalm 119, 176 verses. And as somebody has noted, there are some things that can be said in two verses and some things that have to be said in 176 verses in our worship to the Lord. Sometimes you say two verses, and then it just goes all inward. You can't say any more. And then others, it's a different thing. And that's the beauty about worship is just how individual it is, how in the moment it is, however God wants it to be. And uh, the Psalms are very much in that vein. The psalmist writes and he says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And so here in this psalm, the Jewish psalmist is calling on all of the Gentile world to join God's people among the children of Israel in worshiping the Lord. And it is very much a missionary psalm, and it expresses the heart of this Jewish worshiper for the whole world to know the Lord and to worship the Lord. And sometimes we read this and we say, well, what's the big deal about that? But I'll tell you, the psalmist had to fight against some things culturally in order to have the heart that this psalmist has in 117. At the time of Jesus, the kind of division that had grown between the Jews and the Gentile world was very, very significant. And uh, some of the rabbis of Jesus' day taught that uh, openly taught and referred to Gentiles as dogs, as just animals. Now, before we become critical in our heart toward anyone that would hold that view, the fact of the matter is Gentiles, both then and today, but we're talking about the ancient world, were living lives that were basically on the level of an animal, on the level of a dog. Whatever the body told them to do, they did it, and they did it in spades. And here you have these Jewish people who have the law and the prophets, and they have this sanctifying influence of the Word of God. They at least had in their heart what was right and what was wrong and all of these areas that were still kind of being defined uh, by the culture, by the Gentiles that they were buying into. And so they had a great advantage, the Jews did, in terms of holy living and living a life that was, you know, in the way that the Creator would want it to be lived. And so they looked at how low the Gentiles were living And there was this just this strong separation. And what the Jews did is they began to separate themselves uh, in in a 
in a stronger way than God ever intended them to. We are always supposed to be separated from the sin of the world around us. And sometimes that will be mean necessarily separating ourselves from people who represent a temptation to pull us into sin. But so that holiness and that call to separation occurs, but we don't go to the degree that they had done where they saw themselves above them and they looked at the Gentile world as just hopeless and actually unworthy of worshiping the true and the living God. In fact, some of the rabbis in Jesus' day taught that their, their view of the Gentile was so low that they taught that God had created the Gentiles for the simple reason of feeding the fires of hell. That's why God created Gentiles, was to just put logs on the fire for eternity and keep the flames going. So that was the attitude. And so for a psalmist to sit down and to write of the love of God and the mercy of God and the truth of God, and calling on the Gentile world to worship the Lord, that really represented the heart of God in, in this writer in a way that wasn't broadly represented many times uh, in, in the ancient world among the Jews. There's something interesting as he calls the whole Gentile world to laud the Lord and to praise the Lord, he gives the reasons. And uh, it's a short psalm, so he just gives two reasons. He says four, and four is a reason word. His merciful kindness is great toward us, number one, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. And so here's a man who looks at what God's merciful kindness has meant in his life, what the truth of God has meant in his life, and he cannot keep it to himself. However great there might be a division between one group or another at the time that he lived, he had such a sense of blessing at these things that were his from God that as much as the culture might pit one group of people up against another group of people, all that filled his heart was a desire that everyone would know the God that he knew and experience the merciful kindness and the truth of the Lord in the same way that he did. And that's the way that it works. When When you discover something good or you're into something good, you're going to let other people know about it. I think that so often sometimes um, I'm not a great one for pounding people on any particular issue. Um, I'll be as strong, try to be as strong as the Word of God is and what it declares and sometimes the highly exhortive passages within the Bible and that kind of thing. But you're never going to get people to do things or to change their mind by beating them up Sunday by Sunday. It's not going to happen. But when you take the beauty of the Christian life and you lay it out and to be seen by everyone that wants to look at it, I mean, nothing else in the whole world compares to it. And so you can take people and you can beat them up and talk to them about you should be sharing your faith, you should be sharing your faith, you should be sharing your faith, and we should be sharing our faith. But out of what kind of a motivation of constraint or because the guy up in front told me that I needed to, that motivation never holds up over the long term. 
Paul said, the love of Christ constrains me. When we think about what we have and the life that we have, and the desire is for everyone to know this life, for everyone to know God the way that we know him, and for everyone to worship God the way that we worship him, and more. But that's the motivation and the thing where we look at the world and we look at the lost world and what opens up our mouth when it would otherwise be kept quiet, when relationships are at risk by talking to people about these things. And so often that's in the case within a family or in different places that we find ourselves in. Here is a man who opened up his mouth and did so because he wanted the whole world to know about the life that he was living day in and day out, the blessings of it. He couldn't keep it to himself. And, and so he wanted to let, let the whole world know that God is this. He is merciful. He, he is full of merciful kindness. And his truth of the Lord endures forever. And, and so this beautiful heart that he has toward the unsaved world. And I think about Jesus, you know, here he is obviously the greatest man. He's the God-man in human history, certainly the greatest Jew who ever lived and certainly the greatest rabbi who ever lived. And here he is, he's born into human history at a time where there's this great division between Jew and Gentiles. I mean a great and hostile division between the two groups. And what does Jesus do in that in that division, he disregards all of it. The most famous verse, everything that comes, came out of his mouth is famous, equally famous, should be famous. But the most famous words that ever came out of his mouth, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you sit here tonight and you are not a Christian, you have never committed your life to the Lord. I received a letter to this week, and a powerful letter of where the Lord had taken a person from what they once were prior to Christ and what they had become. And there's always hope in the Lord. He is a miracle worker. And so sometimes we think we've got to clean up our act or religion has represented the Lord in this way. There's a two-tier system. There's the ins, the outs. There's no hope for me and all. In Christ, there's, all, there's hope for everyone. He came to heal the sick, the ones that are spiritually in need, the greatest of sinners, the least of sinners. He wants to save and to forgive us all. And so Jesus' heart for the whole world, Jew and Gentile alike, Represented in this Psalm 117. Then we go into Psalm 118, and this is a psalm of praise to the Lord for God's mercy and for His goodness. And the psalm begins and ends, the first verse and the last verse are identical. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And then he gives us the reasons why. For he is good. Have you ever known him not to be anything but good to you? So, well, there was that one time. It looked a little iffy for a few minutes. And then once God did what he did and we realized what he was doing as opposed to what we thought was the best thing to do, we just praise and thank him that he didn't listen to our counsel and our prayers through all of that and did precisely what he wanted. God is always doing good in our lives. 
and always working all things together for good in our lives. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good and His mercy endures forever. He never runs out. And so he begins the psalm by calling upon uh, everyone, all of those who know the Lord and love the Lord, to give him praise for his goodness and his mercy. He said, let Israel now say his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say his mercy endures forever. Well, most of us are kind of left out of those two. Most of us are Gentiles in the room. But he's got us on his radar screen in verse 4. This is where we can chime in. Let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. It might be good for us just to say that, isn't it? Let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. So he he deserves to hear that from us. And so we got to tell him that uh, this evening. And then in verse 5, he praises the Lord for being a safe and trustworthy place to run during times of distress and fear. He said, I called on the Lord in distress. And the Lord answered me and he set me in a broad place. That is a safe place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And those of you who were were here this morning, you recognize that verse. It's a writer of the book of Hebrews by the Spirit of God quotes this verse and speaking about covetousness and the reason that we can rest in the Lord because He's on our side. The Lord is for me among those who help me, and therefore I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man always. And it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes or even the most powerful of people. God, what's the difference? No matter how powerful or well-intentioned a human being might be, he or she can never be completely and unfailingly faithful. God is always completely and unfailing faithful. And then... In verse 10, he praised the Lord uh, for helping him when he was surrounded by his enemies. All nations surrounded me. Now, you thought you had it bad because your next-door neighbor keeps throwing something into your backyard or whatever your problem might be. Here's a real problem. All nations have surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. Obviously, he surrounded and uh, well aware of it. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. And the Lord is my strength and my song. He's my strength and he's my reason for praise. And he has become my salvation. And then in verse 15, he praised the Lord for his power and the strength of his right hand. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly and the right hand is the strongest arm, speaking of God's power. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. 
the Lord has chastened me severely. You have no idea how much that verse comforts me. I have company. (laughs) Boy, can the Lord chasten. It is wonderful. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And then he goes on to say, Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and and have become my salvation. So he begins to praise the Lord for God's salvation in his life. And we'll come back to those three verses in just a, a minute or so. But as he's speaking about the Lord, the grace of God, the, the mercy of God by the Holy Spirit now, the writer of, of Psalm 119, continuing on this theme, his thoughts turn to the coming of the Messiah. And this verses 20, 19 all the way through to the end of the chapter is one of the most messianic sections of the Psalms and in all 150 Psalms uh, in, in the book. And why would, why would the heart and the mind of the psalmist turn so specifically to the Messiah, to Jesus, in Psalm 118, except for the fact that by the Spirit of God, he recognizes that the ultimate expression of God's mercy and of his goodness, that ultimate expression of God's mercy and goodness, occurred in the sending of Jesus into this world to become our Savior. And so this uh, psalm now to the end speaks very, very specifically of Jesus. And one of the reasons this section of Psalm 118 is of such great interest to us is because Jesus ascribed it to himself as the Messiah. And all of the prophecies from uh, verse 19 through 29 have already been fulfilled uh, in him. You notice he said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so the psalmist declared that when the Messiah came into the world, that he will be rejected by man, by builders, but in spite of that, become the chief cornerstone. And what does that mean, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? In Matthew chapter 21, verse 42 We're told that Jesus quoted this verse to the Jewish religious leaders in the face of their continued rejection of him as the Messiah. And Jesus said to them, as I read that verse to you, did you never read in the scriptures? And that really had to get them. Because they were the big experts. Nobody came to them and said, boy, did you ever... Read this. What do you mean? We've read this. This is our life's work. But how conveniently they overlooked certain passages within the Bible. And so Jesus said, did you never read in the Scriptures? And then he quotes Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus was just simply reminding them that God had prophesied 
long ago, in fact, a thousand years before Jesus was born, that the builders, the leaders of the nation, would reject the coming Messiah, and Jesus was telling them that they were merely fulfilling the prophetic scriptures in their rejection of him. You're the leaders, Jesus is saying. You're the builders, and you're doing exactly what the psalmist declared you would do a thousand years ago. Now, it's interesting when it talks about the builders rejecting the chief cornerstone, that it doesn't say that the common people rejected the chief cornerstone or the Messiah. When Jesus came into the world and during his public ministry, we're told that the common people heard him gladly. They were continually wanting to make him king and acknowledge him for the Messiah that he was. All of his pain of heart and opposition came from the builders, the religious leaders of the nation uh, of, uh, of Israel. But as the psalmist prophesied, just as the psalmist prophesied, those who were responsible for building the nation spiritually in Israel, they would be the ones that would reject him. And Jesus was declaring of himself, declaring himself to be the chief cornerstone. It's interesting, and I love the imagery here, and that's why I want to spend a moment talking about it. Jesus declares himself to be the chief cornerstone. And in those days when they would build a building, that part of the world, it wasn't like today where they, you know, bring in a backhoe and they cut the trenches for the foundation and then put everything in there, the rebar and everything that's required, and then we pour concrete in for the foundation. Of course, they didn't have that kind of thing in those days. And so they would lay the foundation with stone. They have a lot of stones in Israel. And uh, not a lot of wood. So the buildings would be built, the foundation would be built of stone, and then the buildings would be built of, of smaller stones being put upon the larger uh, stones. And, and uh, by virtue of being the cornerstone, several things were very true, were true of the cornerstone of a building. First of all, the cornerstone was the v- most important stone that was laid in the entire building. Just as Jesus is to be the most important stone or part of our lives. That's what's being communicated. And then second, every other stone in that building was measured off of the cornerstone. The cornerstone was laid and the rest of the building, those of you who are in construction, you understand how important this is. The, everything else from the rest of the foundation to the rest of the building was measured off of that cornerstone, just as we're to measure every part of our lives off of Jesus in order to determine whether we are truly spiritual or not in our speech, in our action, in our thinking, uh, in, in our doing, our motives and our attitudes. And then third, because every stone was measured off of the cornerstone, every stone as a result of that had a relationship with the cornerstone just as every one of our lives are meant to be lived in a personal relationship with the Lord. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, I'm just going to turn to it for a moment. Verse 19, Paul speaks about this same imagery. And he says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And the whole building, a building in the, in the ancient world, could only be considered safe and sound, safe to enter, if the rest of the building was measured off of and in right relationship with the chief cornerstone. And that, that, was, that was what was true of the physical building. And what was true of a chief cornerstone in a physical building is true of a human life who makes Jesus the most important part of our lives. That is, he provides a solid foundation for our lives. He brings a stability into our lives that we would never otherwise know. And he brings a completeness to our lives that we would never otherwise know. And not only that, but he then holds the whole building together. He holds our lives together. And he produces a life that is solid and sure and stable and beautiful. And your life is a witness of that. I hate to think about what my life would be apart from the chief cornerstone being present in, in my life. Isn't Christianity terrible? It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And then Jesus, when he presented himself to the builders uh, uh, on the day of his triumphant entry, the Jewish religious leaders at, at that time, they had no place for him in their building plans. And so they rejected him. They denied him his place, the place that God had for him in the nation. And the reason that the builders, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day, rejected him as the chief cornerstone is because what they were building and what Jesus was building were two entirely different things. They were building a religion based upon works and human effort as a way of salvation, which is a lie because no one can earn salvation. And so they were building this. They had taken and hijacked, basically, the law and the prophets, and they had transformed it into what they thought God was saying, and it looked nothing like what God intended it to be, and they turned it into a religion of works related to salvation, and then the whole, they turned it into a religious system that was very, very lucrative. It became about money. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and he begins to speak about salvation as a free gift and that it's received by faith. And they realized immediately that what this man is building and what we are building are two entirely different things. They cannot coexist. They're not going to work. So they viewed Jesus as a threat. They recognized what he was teaching will be the undoing of what we've put together. And so they decided we've got to get rid of him. 
And thus, when Jesus came as the Messiah and they listened to his teaching, they realized this guy is working off of a completely different set of blueprints than we are. He is building something entirely different. And Jesus made it very clear that their plan and God's plans plan were two entirely different things. And it happened just as God declared that when the Messiah came, he would not fit into the plans of the Jewish religious leaders at the time. He did not fit into what they were building. But rather than abandon what they were building, they rejected heaven's cornerstone. Think about that. So committed to this Thing that he can't even show them from the scriptures where they're wrong and get them to budge from it. But instead, turning all their efforts to the destruction and the death of Jesus, of the Messiah, of the chief cornerstone, fulfilling, I just so blind, fulfilling the scriptures that they claim to be the experts of. And the fascinating thing is that God said concerning their rejection of the chief cornerstone that they wouldn't have the last word, but that he would become the chief cornerstone. You notice in verse 22, God overruled their attempts and and, in overruling their rejection of Jesus as the chief cornerstone, he made uh, Jesus the chief cornerstone despite their best effort. And it, it never, ever matters what a person thinks of Christ or thinks of Jesus or whether they accept Jesus or they reject Jesus. That never has any bearing at all on who and what he is. It never changes that. That's never, it never reflects poorly on him. It always reflects poorly on the person who is doing the rejecting. He is still the chief cornerstone. And then all of this was demonstrated in Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which the psalmist refers to then in verse 24 through 26. So here is Jesus' rejection in the three and a half years of his public ministry, verses 22 and 23, and then this great prophecy concerning Jesus' triumphal entry. This is the day, the psalmist writes, that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And we recognize in verses 25 and 26 that these were the very verses that were being sung to Jesus by his disciples and by the common people as he made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem from uh, the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley to then publicly and, and uh, formally present himself as the, the Messiah of the Jewish people. And so we're told, and Luke records it for us, that then they brought the donkey to Jesus and they threw their uh, own garments on the colt and they set Jesus on him and as he went they spread their clothes on the road and then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice 
and praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. These folks are excited, and this is what they began to cry out to Jesus. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they're quoting this psalm, Messianic psalm. And the Pharisees were upset that Jesus didn't silence the disciples concerning this praise. And they told Jesus and, and called on Jesus saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, which tells us that they knew that the crowd was declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. In other words, they recognized that verses 24, 25, and 26 were messianic out of Psalm 118, but they could not see that verses 22 and 23 were also messianic in their part in it. Amazing. They knew the psalm, but they did not want to accept the clear teaching of the psalm. And the multitude here ascribing uh, these Psalm 118 to Jesus, they're publicly acknowledging Him as the promised Messiah. And the interesting thing is that Jesus accepted this praise from them. He accepts this uh, declaration by them of uh, an acknowledgement of him as king and as the Messiah. And when the Jewish religious leaders told them to silence the crowd from doing what they were doing, Jesus said, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. In essence, Jesus said, these psalm, those verses in Psalm 118 were put there to be sung to the Messiah at this very moment in human history. And if human voices will not offer this praise to the Lord, then God will cause even the rocks to cry out these two verses to me in order to fulfill the prophetic scriptures. And in verse 24, all of this triumphant entry is referred to as the day that the Lord has made. Now, I think it's fabulous to just wake up in the morning and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That's true of every day for a Christian. But in verse 24, it speaks very specifically of the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're speaking about a very specific day because it was the, the day of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem was the day that Daniel the prophet prophesied of in Daniel chapter 9 and his prophecy that when the decree is given to restore and to build Jerusalem and the wall, count 173,880 days and you will have the day of the coming of Messiah the Prince. And that day landed on April 6, 32 A.D., the very day that Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem on the, uh, on, uh, the week before his crucifixion. And that's why Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem after his triumphal entry because by and large they had failed to recognize him as the promised Messiah even though God gave them the very day that he would come. It's interesting when you read the Gospel of John 
And continually in Jesus' public ministry, the people tried to make Jesus the king. They tried to make him, uh, kind of out him as the, as, the, as the Messiah, to take that position formally. And over and over again, we're told in the Gospel of John, but he didn't allow it to happen because his time had not yet come, because his time had not yet come, because his time had not yet come. Why would he, knowing he had come into the world, for this very purpose, knowing he knowing that he was exactly who they recognized him to be, why would he not let them uh, formally make him king and pronounce him formally the Messiah of the nation? Why did he turn it back over and over and over again? Because he knew from Daniel's prophecy and from Psalm 118 that that was to occur on a specific day. And so when they began to sing his praises and proclaim him to be king and Messiah, on the day of his triumphal entry, he received it because that was the day that Daniel had prophesied of. And then you notice in verse 27 and 28, so you have him rejected in his, as the Messiah in his public ministry, verses 22 in, in 23, rejected by the religious establishment, and then the great proclamation, the ascribing of this praise to him, the recognition by the common people of him as the Messiah and as the King in verses 24 through 26. And then the whole progression continues as the Holy Spirit reveals here now that the cornerstone would become a sacrifice for our sins. God is the Lord. And he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. How does a king... become a sacrifice for our sin. How is it that the Messiah comes into human history and then dies for our sin? That was the thing that so many of the Jewish religious leaders, they did not want to accept. The two portraits of Christ in the Old Testament the first one of him coming as a conquering king and the second portrait coming as a suffering savior. And when they read the two, the two portraits of the same one, they couldn't see how it could all come together. They didn't have a revelation of a first coming and a second coming, that Jesus would come into the world and fulfill the prophetic scriptures having to do with the Messiah being a suffering Savior and then in his second coming into the world fulfill all of the prophecies that have to do with him being a conquering king. So they did what any of us would probably do, and that is saying, if we're going to choose one of the two portraits, let's choose the more positive of the two, especially being under Roman dominion. 
Do we want a Savior more or do we, a Jewish Savior to save us from our sins? Or do we want a, a Jewish King who is going to deliver us from this bondage to Rome? And so they loaded toward the looking of the Scriptures and emphasizing the conquering king side of the Messiah to the neglect of the other side, and thus they were unbalanced when the Messiah came. And they rejected him out of that imbalance. But here's this beautiful psalm, the chief cornerstone, the praise, the king, and then him as a sacrifice in verses 27 and 28. All of it just perfectly united in Jesus because before the week would end, that passion week, Jesus would end up as a king nailed to the cross for our sins. As John the Baptist said to his disciples, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and pointing his disciples to then follow after Jesus. And for what purpose would the Messiah come and be bound to the altar, be offered as a sacrifice? It takes us back again to verses 19, 20, and 21 in order that we might be able to sing this to the Lord tonight in praise and thanksgiving. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through them. It is through the blood and the sacrifice of Christ that the gates of righteousness, the gates to heaven, have been opened up to us, and we have the privilege of entering into them as a simple act of our will through faith. And this is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter, and I will praise you For you have answered me and have become my salvation. And so the reminder in this psalm of the praise for God's goodness and his mercy toward us and the reminder that Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's goodness and his mercy toward us in allowing us to come to know Jesus as our cornerstone and as our king and then as our sacrifice and our savior. A beautiful, beautiful psalm and and testifying so wonderfully of the Lord. Sometimes people say, you know, the Bible, it's a man-made book and all of this. And I know the arguments for which to then speak to them and blah, 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 and this and this and the unity of the whole thing and the whole everything. It gives me a headache, candidly. But I'm, I'm glad that other people are called to do that in the body of Christ. I'm so busy enjoying my relationship with the Lord, growing in this life. I know somebody has to answer that question in the culture. And I, again, I'm not putting it down. I'm thankful that they do. But my answer is always a very simple one. People say, well, man wrote that book. I look them right in the eye and say, you have never read that book, have you? No one could ever read this Bible and come to the conclusion 
no matter how lofty our ideas in terms of human potential or what a man or a group of men and women could ever put together, no matter how highly we think of men, how highly we esteem men, no one can read this book and know this book and ever say a man wrote that book or a series of men. Only God could have written this book, the wonder of it, the beauty of it, the interconnectedness of it, the singleness of its message, how it glorifies the Lord, how it so builds upon itself, and then its power to speak to our lives in a way that no human literature, however wonderful it might be, ever can. So a beautiful, beautiful psalm. As we think about the book and the Bible and the Word of God, it makes us think of the next psalm, Psalm 119. Oh, let's just knock it out tonight. We've got about 15 minutes. And we'll pick that up. I was hoping to start it at least, but this is the story of my life. I never get as far as I think we'll get. And I go home and I blame you. You say, how do you do it? I have my ways. I'm a blame shifter all the way. The Lord busts me. So we'll look to pick up Psalm 119 next time. We'll ask the worship team to come forward tonight.